Friends, if you would, would you stand with me as we read God's Word together? Our passage this morning comes from Acts 28, verses 1 through 10. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they had kindled a fire and welcomed us all, because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And we, when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. Friends, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Good morning to you, Metrocrest, both here and those of you at home. My name is Zach, and I am the pastor of Rockwall Presbyterian Church, and so on behalf of your brothers and sisters at Rockwall Pres, I greet you in the name of Christ. It's a privilege to finally be with you this morning, and sincerely, I thank you for letting me be a part of this special day and all that it means in the life of this church. Bill, it is a privilege to let you share this pulpit with me. And so may the joy of Christ be ours this morning. Today we are in the last chapter of Acts, and we have a snakebite story on our hands. Now, if I were Luke, then Acts would abruptly abruptly end with verse 3. Why? Because I'd be long gone. I hate snakes, and they should all die. So, since we're getting... Since we're getting to know each other, the first point of application this morning is that if I'm ever with you in the event that you were bitten by a snake, then please know, my friends, I will be of zero help to you. None whatsoever. I love you. I hope things work out for you. I will pray for you as I run. And I can see it on your faces. You're wondering, Zach. You're such a large, imposing man. How could you be afraid of anything? How can these things be? Yet, alas, I hate snakes. And today we have a snake bite story before us. On the surface, this event is obviously miraculous. But if you know the book of Acts even decently well, it also kind of feels a little bit random, doesn't it? Why did Luke include this story? Why is it here? Maybe that question would make a little bit more sense if we take the whole story of the book of Acts into view. 
Because up to this point in the story, is the gospel really victorious? Isn't that what the book of Acts is supposed to be about? Here we are at the end of the book, and it doesn't seem like the gospel is victorious whenever Paul, our all-star, our golden boy, is in chains, shipwrecked in the middle of the Mediterranean in a nowhere town on a nowhere island called Malta. And on top of that, he's cold, wet, and he's just trying to get warm by the fire when a viper jumps out and bites him on the hand. Is the gospel really victorious? God, where are you? It's a question we all ask when we have a certain future in mind. And yet, life takes a different turn and we crash headfirst into unexpected circumstances. Instead of sunny days, we find ourselves shipwrecked. And my friends, beloved, I know you find yourself in unexpected circumstances this morning. You find yourself inside concentric circles of unexpected, life-changing, church-changing, world-changing events. You find yourself inside an unexpected church renovation, inside a pastoral transition, inside a church disillusion, inside a church merger, inside a divided church at large, inside a nation at unrest, inside economic instability, inside a global pandemic. Not to mention all of the ways in which those things have impacted you. In light of all of that, does the gospel feel victorious to you right now? Perhaps you feel more shipwrecked and snake bit. And that's okay. But know this. God has a purpose for you. God has a purpose for you. Why? Because he had a purpose for Paul. Paul is bitten by the snake, but nothing happens. No swelling, no reaction, no effect. Paul just shakes off the snake into the fire. And so what's the significance of this snake bite story? Because Luke decides to effectively end the book of Acts with this story. What's it tell us? What does Luke want us to see? Well, there are two things in the snake bite story. The first is that it's a sign of God's presence with Paul. It's a sign of his presence with Paul. Malta is not a detour. The shipwreck was not a surprise. God is not sitting on a dock in Rome waiting and wondering when Paul is going to arrive. This snake bite represents that despite appearances, that despite what's happened, God is with Paul. And everything is going exactly how he wants it to go. Why? Because he's the sovereign storyteller. And sometimes he lets snakes into the garden. And secondly, it's one last display in the final moments of Acts of what the entire book is about. The snake bite is symbolic because it also represents something more than just the event itself. It's symbolic of the very gospel story. In the cross and resurrection, Christ was victorious over Satan, sin, and death. 
And in the Great Commission, Jesus calls us to participate in that victory through the proclamation of the gospel to every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. And this snake bite is a picture of what the book is all about, that we are meant to be a people that share in the victory of the resurrected Christ. It's also representative of how what Jesus said would happen actually happened. He says in Luke 10, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. He didn't say that just to the 12 disciples. He said that to 72 people. And then in the Great Commission to 300, he says, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. There is nothing that will stop my power. There is nothing that will stop my purposes. Now go and share in my victory. This is what the story of Acts tells us. That we were meant to be a people of immense power. Because the same spirit of Christ that, or the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, Christian. And you are invited to participate in something of which there are no obstacles. There are no enemies that could overcome it. And in the end, there is no venom that will have any effect over Christ's victory. We are meant to share in that victory and be a people of power problem is the church doesn't talk that way anymore we don't seem to carry with us any sense of cosmic victory and divine purpose quite frankly we see the church give far more energy to elections than the elect we see the church concerned more with earthly power rather than laying hold of an otherworldly power we seem to be on the defensive all the time pointing fingers We've lost that sense of divine purpose. The church doesn't seem to carry any sense of wow to the gospel anymore. A few years ago, on Friday afternoon, my wife called me at 2 p.m. And she she called and I answered the phone and she said, there's a snake in the garage. And I said, yeah, I know there's a snake in the garage. I I killed one just a few days uh, ago, uh, a little baby one. Killed it with a paint can. It was awesome. And uh, I said, I know it's in there. And she said, no, there's a snake in the garage. She said, I went out. I heard something tip over. I looked at it. It looked at me. And we both went in the opposite directions. (laughs) So you need to come home and you need to kill it. So I get in my truck, nervous. I'm putting on ACDC, Metallica, just something to get myself worked up. And so I drive four minutes home, not nearly long enough time to get pumped up. I pull on my driveway, and I told her not to open the garage door because I wanted to make sure I got it. So I look for anything that I could possibly weaponize in this ancient struggle between man and serpent. And so I found my St. Louis Cardinals World Series commemorative baseball bat. I grabbed it. I opened my garage door, and I'm ready for it but I don't see it. So I start looking everywhere. I look under my lawnmower. I look under my my smoker. I look in all the corners. I look everywhere. Couldn't possibly find it. It's scared. I know. It's scared. So I walk out into my driveway, and I'm like, where is this thing? Hands on the hips, just staring. And then all of a sudden, my wife and my son, who was two years old at the time, they peek around the corner, and she says, did you get it? And I said, no, I can't find it. And right as I said it, it hit me. I knew exactly where it was. I looked over in the corner where I have all of my potting soil and my fertilizer from my lawn, 
And there was cardboard resting up against it. And I'm like, that's where it is. And so I walked over. I pulled back the cardboard. And sure enough, there was a four-foot snake that took one look at me and coiled up ready to strike. And so I laid the cardboard back down. And I screamed. And I backed away. And all of a sudden, my phobia is hitting. And I am like getting down on all fours, like trying to figure out what I'm going to do to get this snake out. And so I employ every single piece of lawn care equipment that I own to try and kill this snake. But every time I would hit it, it'd crawl further back in, and then it crawled back behind my fridge. And for an hour, I went at it with this snake. And finally, I dealt a blow to it where I could drag it out into the driveway and unload about 500 shovels to it. But anyways, I was victorious. Later that night, I'm cooking dinner, and my son likes to sit on the counter while I cook dinner. And all of a sudden, as I'm just cutting vegetables, I hear him go, snake, boom, wow. I was like, son, please, go on. <laughs> and he said it again. He said, snake, boom, wow. And he kept saying it the rest of the night, and he kept saying it in the coming days ahead. And then it hit me. What a perfect two-year-old expression of the gospel. Snake. Boom. Wow. The cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Snake. Boom. Wow. The end of all things, whenever Satan gathers all of his forces before Jesus and his holy ones, and Jesus just walks through them like they're ants on a sidewalk, grabs Satan, drags him into the lake of fire, and all the saints rejoice. Snake. Boom. Wow. We don't really live with a sense of wow anymore. We don't really live with a sense of cosmic victory that we participate in, a sense of divine purpose. And if there's no wow anymore, then we probably start to wonder whether or not there was a boom in the first place. And if we feel like there was maybe no boom, then we feel like all we are left with is a snake. And my friends, the book of Acts tells you a different story. The book of Acts invites us to realize the people that we were called to be and reimagine the power that flows through a people that are devoted to the mission and purposes of Christ in their time and in their place. Because the story of Acts is not a story of what happened back then. It is also a story of what could be now. It's the same spirit with the same purpose. And so this passage asks us a very simple question. How can we be a people of power in our time and in our place in the midst of unexpected circumstances? How can we be a wow kind of people? The first is that we learn to trust in God's sovereignty instead of trying to escape. It's no great mystery to say that when life doesn't go how we want and we're met with unexpected circumstances, it's easy to feel as though God has left the building. God feels distant in those moments. And when life doesn't go how we want, we feel marooned. We feel marooned on the island of difficult parenting. We feel marooned on the island of dissatisfaction with our career. We feel marooned on the island of a frustrating marriage, job uncertainty, failing health. In the end, we feel marooned on the island of disappointment with what life had become. And we ask that great question, God, where are you? And naturally, whenever we feel this way, we try to change it. We try to fix it. We try to make life how we want it to be. But quite honestly, it's not that simple, is it? 
Because usually the things that make us wrestle with God's sovereignty and ask that question, God, where are you, are the things of life that are not easily or quickly fixed, which only seems to compound our feelings of discontent and alienation from God. Then what happens? Well, when we face those hard circumstances, we try to balance that out with something else. Just to have a moment's peace. Just to have a moment of solitude where we don't have to think about those things. We try to escape and hit the eject button so we don't have to deal with it. So maybe we hurry up and put the kids to bed so we have time for one more episode. Or we check our phone at every stoplight just to see what happened since the last stoplight. We pour another glass. We start a new project. We veg out and scroll for hours. So really a question for us is if we really thought about it on an average day, how much time is spent trying to escape the moment you're in. And yet the fact that we're so prone to try and escape should really challenge us as people that profess God's sovereignty. Why? Because we believe God is in every moment of every day. We believe he is a God that writes our sunny days and our shipwrecks. Nothing happens apart from his hand. There are no detours. He's never caught off guard. He's never surprised. He knows all your struggles, all the things you want to avoid, all the things you wish were different, all the ways you wish life could have been, and all the ways you hope it to be in the future. He knows every single detail, and yet, there you are in that moment. Why? Because he puts you there. Which means that if we're constantly trying to escape the moment we're in, in hard circumstances, and ask God, where are you? then our very profession of God's sovereignty flips that question back on us. Because in it, God asks us, No, where are you? You're the one trying to jump ship. I'm always here. I'm always at work. I'm with you in every single moment of every single day with purpose. Where are you? Are you willing to see beyond your circumstances? When we consider the Apostle Paul in this passage, we see someone who's learned to trust God's sovereign hand in his circumstances. After the shipwreck, we don't see him sitting back while everyone else works. We don't see him having a meltdown over in the bushes. We don't see him trying to escape. We see him in verse 3, simply building a fire and getting settled into this new home that God gave him. And to be a people of gospel power, we have to learn to settle in and trust that God is with us, God is for us, and God is writing our circumstances with purpose. Even the mundane ones, even the ones that feel cold and wet, because God is not in the what could be's or the what should have been's. He's in every moment with you. An act of trust in his sovereignty means that we learn to say, God, you have brought me to this place. And even though I want out, I want you more. What are you doing? What are you up to? What do you desire? What do you desire to change and accomplish in me and through me? I see my problems, but let me see your power. Let me see your presence. Those are the questions of a people of power. An acts kind of people. Because those are the questions that lay aside our expectations and our agenda. And now we're ready to get on God's agenda. Instead of asking why he isn't on ours. Those are the questions that turn your heart, Christian, 
to your God, whose purposes are to heal, renew, restore, redeem, rebuild, and transform. These are the questions that ready us for true power because learning to trust in God's sovereignty is the lens by which we see beyond our circumstances to where even when you are bitten by a snake, you will actually see that it's a sign of his presence and his power in your life. Because what's the alternative? Well, the alternative is to live just like the Malteans. They see Paul struck by a snake and they immediately think that he is a murderer receiving divine justice. But then just a few short moments later when nothing happens, they think he's a god. And when we don't live as those that trust in God's sovereignty in all things big and small, then when life doesn't go our way, we inevitably live like the Malteans because when God actually does show up, we don't even recognize it. And we think it's something else. And in the end, we miss God, which is a strange consequence for those that confess his sovereign guiding hand in every moment. And so where do you find yourself this morning and all that's going on in your life? Will you trust in God's sovereignty and know that all your moments are written with purpose? Will you go to him and ask, Jesus, what are you doing in me? Help me see your purpose in the midst of my problems. That, my friends, is the cry of a people that long to say, wow. And lastly, to be a people of power, we need to remember that the gospel is for nice people. The gospel is for nice people, and that's good news, because Malta was filled with nice people. If you look at the way Paul and these 276 people were received, what's it say? Luke says in verse 2, they showed us unusual kindness. Luke goes out of his way. Of all of the things that he could have recorded in the history of Paul's ministry, he makes sure to mention that they showed unusual kindness. He goes out of his way to say that the Maltians were genuinely kind and hospitable people. And the name Malta, after all, means refuge. And Paul is surrounded on an island filled with nice people. That sounds an awful lot like the suburbs. This is a good passage for us to consider how we lay hold of God's purposes for us because we live in the suburbs and the suburbs are filled with nice people. People that are hospitable, people that have a sense of community, people that look out for one another, people that value family, People that rally behind good causes and most have a church they go to, they'll open the door for you with a nice smile and a sweet hello. And if we're not careful, then we can easily let ourselves off the hook. We can let ourselves off the hook because everything on the outside seems like it's just fine. All the boxes seem to be checked and we think, what need do they have of Jesus? Everything seems to be just fine. It doesn't seem like they need anything. They're so kind and they're so nice. I don't really want to talk about Jesus dying on the cross for the wicked. I don't want to talk about living a sacrificial life for the poor and the needy. I don't want to talk about a life of obedience and picking up their cross and following Jesus. Why? Those things don't seem necessary. And in the end, we just make the mistake of confusing Southern kindness with Christianity. And when that happens, we have to admit 
we have to put the microscope on ourselves and recognize that we minimize and treat Christ's command to extend his kingdom and make disciples of all people as though it no longer applies once you drive into the suburbs. Or as though the effects of sin and death are nullified once you cross into a middle class tax bracket. But nice doesn't mean happy. Nice doesn't mean at peace. Nice doesn't mean a good marriage. Nice doesn't mean they aren't paralyzed with anxiety or gripped by addiction and loneliness and despair. That smile may just be hiding the fact that they are barely hanging on and cover over a deep emptiness of soul. We encounter people on a daily basis that can be just as lost as the Malteans, that even for all of their genuine kindness, they wouldn't recognize a murderer from a god. And to be a people of power and devote ourselves to God's purposes in our time and in our place, we need to learn to see beyond the smile. And how do we do that? Well, how did Paul do it? How did he minister to all of these nice people? Well, notice he doesn't sit back and take a vacation. Instead, he gets to work because he knows the gospel is for nice people too. God put him there for a purpose. But how did he find it? He found their need. He found their suffering. In verses 7 and 8, Paul's invited to stay at the home of the chief man of the island named Publius. And while he was there, Paul learned that Publius' father was sick with dysentery, which was an excruciatingly painful infection of the bowel that could last for years. It was a slow, painful way to die with no remedy or relief. And Paul hears of it. And when he does, he gets up and he goes to visit this man. He prays for him and he's healed. And after this, Paul spent the rest of his time on the island in ministry among the people. Those who had diseases came to him and they were healed. And to them, Paul bore witness. And it's easy to overlook this as though it's just another healing in the book of Acts. But what else is happening? Because for all of this island's kindness, it could do nothing to meet any of their greatest needs and heartaches. What other needs did Paul minister to that lied behind all those smiles? Perhaps he met the needs of parents watching their children or their child suffer and slowly die as they were going bankrupt trying to heal them. Maybe he met the needs of a woman or wives worried about their husband's impending death and how they were going to make ends meet. Concerns about all of the people that felt the powerlessness in the face of destitution and all of the poverty that sickness and disease would bring them in their world. There were people that worried about the same things as you and I. Will I be okay? Am I going to make it? God, are you there? And Paul found God's purpose when he found their need. And the mission of God in our context requires us to learn to see behind the smile and learn to minister to those inevitable needs that we will find there. It learns to help us find, it teaches us to help us find that suffering because people all around you are hurting, lonely, afraid, depressed, numb, confused, and empty. And all of that is covered with a smile on their face. And when we seek to find the needs of those around us, we become a people of power. 
of godly divine power because now you're on the agenda of God to make disciples of all nations and to bring healing to the nations, even the nice ones. And so how can we put all this together as we close? Well, none of this would have happened if Paul spent all of his time trying to figure out how to get off the island. When we learn to actively trust God's sovereign hand in our lives, then we start to see a deeper sense of purpose beyond the shipwrecks of life. Then we are willing to see the reality that is beyond our ability to perceive. We begin to look upward and ask, God, what are you doing in me? What do you want to accomplish? What are your purposes in all of these unexpected circumstances? How can I live in the victory of Christ my Lord? And my friends, that is a question and a readiness that God wants to give you a story to tell. Because you will be able to bear witness to what God has done in you and through you. And how even though all of that began with a shipwreck, you wouldn't trade it for the world. And what an incredibly powerful presence to the world around you you would become. Because you will be able to go out and meet the needs of others because you know how Christ has met you in your own. And make no mistake that you will witness the power of God just like we see with all of these Malteans. Because when these people were healed, they understood what that snake bite represented. They were introduced to the power of Christ and his victory over Satan, sin, and death. And they became a wow kind of people. Because they responded by giving Paul and Luke whatever they needed for their journey. And out of their awe, their gratitude, and their newfound faith, they participated in the events that would change the world forever. Because in the end, it was this shipwreck that brought their salvation. Beloved, here you are this morning, having met so many unexpected circumstances with an unknown future. But I know this, you are not on a detour. God has a purpose for you. This day and all it represents is what God had planned all along. It's just that now you're coming to realize that the future of your two churches was always intended to be intertwined as one. And you are here because God is not done with you. He has a purpose for this church. His presence is with you. His power is for you. And he's writing your story in love. And I don't know what your future holds. But by his grace, it will be a future that you could summarize with three simple words. Snake. Boom. Wow. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, Amen.